Well, good morning. It is a pleasure for me to be here. My name is Jonathan Neufeld, and uh, I am the new Promontory Campus Pastor. Uh, and it is a very special honor to be here this morning, uh, to be commissioned by this church to go out and to plant this campus in Promontory. Uh, it comes after many years of uh, my wife and I praying for where God might lead us. And, uh, you know, it's, it's an honor to be here, and it's an honor to uh, be able to be commissioned by this church and to be sent out. And so we are excited about our new Promontory launch. Uh, it is coming up here in two weeks. September 10th is our big kickoff date. Uh, and every once in a while, I meet someone who says to me, oh, I've been planning on coming to Promontory for a long time, but I had never talked to you. Uh, if that's you here today, if you're here and you've been thinking about it, you've been uh, thinking you might want to do that, today is the day. Please come talk to me. Uh, we're looking at launching fairly soon, and so I'd love to get you involved, get you a part of our core team, and get you serving uh, as we launch. So if that's still you, if you're still thinking about it but haven't talked to me yet, uh, today is the day. Come after service, come find me, and uh, I'd love to get you involved. All right, well, with that, why don't we open our Bibles? Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. And uh, if you have been with us, you will know that we have been walking through the Lord's Prayer. All throughout the summer, we have been dealing with the Lord's Prayer, just taking each week one line and really trying to understand what it means. Right? Oftentimes when it comes to prayer, and especially familiar prayers, we can just recite them sort of mechanically. Right? They don't mean anything anymore. And so one of the things that we're trying to do over the summer is simply remind us what does the Lord's Prayer actually mean? What is it calling us to do? What is it, um, how are we to pray as Jesus' disciples? And so this morning, we are coming to the very final line. We've made it to the end. This is going to be the last message in our series. And we've come to the line, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. And really, what this last petition is, is it's the disciples of Jesus asking for help. We're asking for help because we cannot rescue ourselves. We cannot deliver ourselves. We need God's assistance. And that's always an uncomfortable thing to do, isn't it? To ask someone else for help. We don't like to do that because, you know what? I, I can make it on my own. I can figure it out. I can do it just by myself. I'll be all right. Well, when I was in university, I'd often take the summers off and I'd work. I'd get some uh, horrible labor job, and that would pay for my tuition for the next year. And so I ended up getting a whole bunch of different jobs. I worked on a, a dairy farm, worked on a chicken farm, I did some landscaping. And this particular summer, I worked uh, picking up garbage and recycling. So I was the guy on the back of the truck that hopped on, and uh, as the truck drove, stopped in front of a house, I would throw garbage, recycling, whatever it was, in put it back down and hop on again and keep going. And so this was my job for the summer. And uh, one day I got a, well, I don't know if it's a promotion or a demotion, but uh, I moved from doing recycling to doing yard waste. Yard waste is much heavier. It's a little bit grosser. There's a lot more there. And so I eventually got there. And I, my first day on this job, I've got this new, new position. And so I meet the driver, the guy who's going to be at the front. And he says, OK, I want you to know 
uh, yard waste can be really heavy. People really pack in those bags. And so, you know, if you get to anything that's too much, just ask for help. And I said, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Don't worry about it. You know, I'm young. I'm strong. I can do this. I'll be just fine. And so I committed myself right at the beginning of the day. I'm not going to ask for help. I'm going to be, I'm going to be all right. Well, about 10 hours into my first shift, we were getting close to the end and I was getting tired because there is a lot of heavy stuff and I, I wasn't asking for help, but came to one, got off. I threw the yard waste into the back of the truck and I just took an extra step. And all of a sudden it felt like my back, like a rope just snapped. And all of a sudden this huge explosion of pain just shoots through my back. And I went, okay, um, but I wasn't going to ask for help. So I went to the next one and I, I got it. And I mean, my back is just killing me. So I'm trying not to move and I'm pushing it into this thing and it's just not working. Eventually the driver is definitely seeing me because I, I just eventually collapsed onto the side of the road. I was in so much pain. I needed to ask for help. In fact, that's how God made us. God made us that we are not designed to do everything ourselves. We are intended to be asking for help. And in fact, that's exactly what Jesus is teaching his disciples in this prayer. We are to come to God and we are to ask for his help. So if you have your Bibles open, would you read along with me in Matthew chapter 6? We're going to be starting in verse 9. Hear now, brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we come to you recognizing the fact that we cannot rescue ourselves. Father, we need your help. We need your deliverance. And so, Father, as we come before your word, Lord, I pray, would you work in our hearts that we would no longer chase after sin, we would no longer chase after evil, but that we would love you more and more. Lord, would you turn our hearts to desire you in all things. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we come to the last line of our prayer, deliver us from evil, it really ends on a bit of a heavy note, doesn't it? It's a bit of a a weighty thing. It's not sort of a light and fluffy little prayer that Jesus has. Rather, he is ending on a very serious note. And really, it, it can be considered one of the most controversial lines in the Lord's Prayer simply because of that last word, evil. You know, evil is not a word we use very often. In fact, we try not to use that for the most part. We'll talk about things that are maybe bad or wrong or, or maybe they're hurtful or they're even damaging. But to say something is evil, I mean, that brings in this very strong moral statement. And we, for the most part, we, you know, we don't like to talk like that. We try and stay away from that sort of talk. It's too, it's too absolute. It's too judgmental. It's too intolerant even to declare something as evil. 
And yet, the Bible deals with the reality of evil all the time. And in fact, even in our own world, we, we know it's the case. Evil does exist. And in fact, normally when we talk about something that's truly evil, you know, we're thinking of something big, right? We're think, thinking of something big like, like slavery in the southern U.S. You know, that was just an evil institution. Or you, we might think of sort of what, happens, what happened in Nazi Germany, Right? That, that was an evil event, or the, you know, the genocide in Rwanda, the Cambodian killing fields. Those are evil things, these giant systems of injustice. And so I think naturally when we come to this kind of a text, that's where our minds start going. Deliver us from these, these systems, these injustices that take place on earth. And there's nothing particularly wrong about that prayer. In fact, if we think about, um, if we just think about the Israelites in Egypt, the people of Israel, they were under slavery in Egypt. In fact, the Pharaoh had murdered an entire generation of children simply because there were too many of them. They were suffering under this, and so they are crying out, God, deliver us, and God does. He sends them Moses, a deliverer. He sends the ten plagues over Egypt. He opens the Red Sea so that the Israelites can walk out and he crashes the waves back down so Egypt can't follow them. In fact, God is committed to taking his people out of these systems, out of slavery. God rescues his people. In fact, as you continue through the Old Testament, you see in the prophets again and again, they are always talking about the fact that we are not to oppress the helpless, right? The poor, the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner in the land. They were not to be oppressed. So you can think of the language of Micah. Micah chapter 6 says, What does the Lord your God require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. In fact, God cares a lot about justice. God cares about these things, and he calls us not to oppress those who are helpless. That is certainly part of our Bible. That is a part of God's will that these things would not, uh, that we would not be a part of them. But let me say this. That is not primarily what this prayer is about. That's not primarily what the Lord's Prayer is talking about. And the reason, you know, we can say that, I mean, for one thing, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's teaching his disciples, this is how you ought to pray. So we can assume, at least, his disciples were praying this way. They were praying, Lord, deliver us from evil. And yet, 11 out of the 12 disciples were all put to death under an unjust system. They were crucified. They were beheaded. They were thrown into the Colosseum and torn apart by animals. In fact, the only disciple, that is John, who wasn't put to death, was boiled in oil and then sent to the island of Patmos in exile. In fact, all of Jesus' disciples had to deal with these unjust systems. So either Jesus' prayer means nothing, or we've misunderstood what it means. So what does it mean? Deliver us from evil. Look again with me at verse 13 in your Bibles. 
It says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And if you're using the ESV, you'll notice right after that word evil, there's a little footnote. And the footnote tells you that the word evil can also be translated as the evil one. So deliver us from the evil one, that is Satan. Deliver us from Satan. You see, Jesus' emphasis, his priority here was not physical deliverance, but it was a spiritual one. In fact, in John chapter 17, a passage we'll hopefully get to in the new year as we walk through the gospel of John, Jesus is praying for his disciples and he says in John 17, 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You see, Jesus had a priority for his disciples that they would not fall under the domain, the rule of Satan, but they would be delivered out of it. And so Jesus is praying here in Matthew chapter 6, deliver them out of sin. Deliver them out of the realm of Satan. Deliver them from sin. In fact, as we've been studying the Lord's Prayer, working through it week by week, I hope I hope that you've started to notice something, is that some of the lines of the Lord's Prayer, they really work together. They're pairs. They're meant to be taken together. So you can look at verse 12, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. That's meant to be taken together. They work together. In fact, even your kingdom come, your will be done are meant to be taken together. And it's the same thing we see here in verse 13. Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so Jesus here is equating two things. He's equating falling into temptation with evil. Now, let's be clear. Jesus is not saying that being tempted is sinful. Being tempted is not evil. In fact, we know Jesus was tempted, but he did not sin. No, what Jesus is saying is that our falling into, our giving into those temptations are what is evil. In fact, Jesus is calling our sin evil. And that's where things really start to become a little uncomfortable for us, don't they? Because we know we've all sinned, but we just call them mistakes. We call them accidents. I didn't really mean for it to happen. It just, it just kind of slipped out, right? We have all kinds of ways. We have all kinds of language that deflects away from us what we've actually done. We know all kinds of ways to distance ourselves from what actually has taken place. You know, we say, you know, it's just a white lie. It's just, we, all we did was fudge the numbers a little bit. All it was was an exaggeration, right? We use these terms in order to sort of say, what I've done is not actually that bad. And part of the reason that we do that is because we've started to buy into the lie of sin. We started to buy into the lie of sin that the white lie, it's going to make everything better. It's going to make things simpler. It's easier. It'll save that relationship if you just tell a white lie. Fudging the numbers, I mean, that'll just give you a little bit of a boost for your profit, for your business. That'll actually boost prosperity. We believe that the affair is actually going to bring us more happiness, joy, excitement, pleasure, whatever it is, whatever our spouse wasn't going to give 
to us. You see, we're so focused on the bait, we don't notice the hook that's underneath. Because the truth is that sin doesn't even deliver on its promises. The white lie always compounds. The fudged numbers don't actually bring any more money in. And the affair does not actually bring the happiness we thought it might. See, the hook is often hidden. In fact, more than that, sin doesn't just not deliver on its promises. It actually starts killing the things that we have. Where we tell the white lie in order to save our relationship, what ends up happening is that it gets more complicated and actually the trust begins to break down. We actually end up hurting our relationships more by following into sin. The affair doesn't bring the happiness we thought it might. And more than that, it kills what we had before. And I think gambling is often such a great illustration of this. Because gambling, the lure of gambling is that you're going to make more money. Right? You're going to gain more money. And yet, what is it taking from you? Your money. It's actively robbing you of the thing it is promising. I knew a man once um, who had begun to gamble. He had begun to gamble just like a lot of people looking for the money. But after a while, it wasn't really about the money. It's about the thrill. You're seeking for that, that, that enjoyment, that excitement, and you're looking to try and get that back all the time. And so he began spiraling into this, and he hid it from his wife and his kids until finally one day he had been so sucked into this that after running out of cash, he put his credit card down on the table. He ended up losing his credit card, but not being satisfied with that, he put his house down. His wife found out about his addiction because not only were they bankrupt, they were homeless. And she ended up leaving him. He was looking after that thrill, looking after that excitement. And not only did sin not deliver on that, it took everything else away from him. You see, sin doesn't deliver on its promises and then it'll kill everything else. But here's the thing, it's easy for us to say, well, okay, sure, that's an extreme example. I mean, that's not going to happen to me. My sins aren't really that bad. You know, he had all sorts of other issues going on in his life, I'm sure. So, you know, that's not the same for me. My sins, they're under control. My sins are fine. James chapter 1, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You say your sin isn't that bad? That you've got it under control? All it's doing is that your sin is still growing. Your sin is still growing, it's still maturing, and one day it will bring forth death. If it doesn't rob you of everything in this life, it will in the next. You see, we talked about our God is a God who loves justice. And in fact, that means justice against our sin as well. Our sin breaks our relationship with God and actually invites His wrath. 
Sin doesn't promise or doesn't deliver on its promises. In fact, it brings forth death. But here, let me say, listen closely, because there's a danger in this message. And the danger is that we stop right here. The danger is because Satan lies on both sides of sin. Satan lies to us on both sides of sin. Before we sin, Satan tells us, you know what? It's not that bad. It's going to be great. Think about all the the fun that you'll have, the incitement and the enjoyment that is there. And he will lie to you and tell you that it's going to be great. And then when you actually fall into it, when you've committed the sin, Satan comes back and he says, you're worthless. You're rotten. How dare you? You think someone would forgive you after what you've done? And Satan says, why don't you go back and do it again? You don't have any other hope, so so you may as well go back to your sin. Get a little bit more enjoyment. It'll be great. And we fall again, and Satan says, you've done it twice. There's no way you're going to be forgiven. And he digs in deeper and deeper and deeper as he swirls about, says, sink your teeth deeper into the bait while the hook drives deeper. So then we have to ask, is there any hope? If we have actually committed evil in our sin, is there any hope for us? Jesus teaches us to pray, deliver us from evil. Why? Because there is one who will deliver us. You see, that's actually what Jesus is calling us to. Jesus is calling us to the deliverer, to the one who will forgive us. We need to be delivered from our sins. And it's true, sin is worse than we know. But here's the truth. God's forgiveness is greater than we'll ever imagine. God's forgiveness, His grace is greater than our sins. As horrible as we have messed up, it is untrue that we cannot be forgiven. No, God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ makes it possible for us to be forgiven. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul writes, he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh. Paul says we are dead in our sins. We are condemned. We are trapped. We are stuck. We are hooked. But God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Notice that word all, all of our sins, all of the horrible things that we thought no one would ever forgive us for, for the things that we've done that we've hidden from everyone. God says, I have forgiveness for all of them. How? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, on the cross of Jesus Christ, the punishment for our sins was laid not on us, but on Jesus Christ. The entire record of our sins, the record of our debt, was nailed onto the cross of Jesus so that we would not bear it. That for anyone who would repent who would turn their back and say, I want nothing more to do with my sins, who would place their trust in Jesus Christ, say, you are my only hope for deliverance, we would be saved. 
that anyone who would place their trust in Jesus Christ would be forgiven, their sins no longer hanging over them, but they are finished. That is the salvation that we have. That is the one who will deliver us out of evil. And Paul says in verse 15, it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Here he's talking about Satan. And he put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Christ, or in Jesus Christ. You see, on the cross, all of the lies of Satan are exposed. All of the lies that say we can't be forgiven for what we've done are exposed for what they are. Jesus Christ has made forgiveness available. Whenever Satan comes to us and says, sin isn't that bad, the cross stands as a reminder that it cost the Son of God for us to be forgiven. But it also stands open that anyone who would come would be forgiven. All of their sins, the full record of their debt is dealt with. That is why we are to pray, deliver us from evil. We are to pray that way because... We serve a God who can deliver us. We serve a God who is able, who is strong enough, who is able to bring us out of the domain of darkness and into his glorious light. We can come to God with confidence, knowing that he will answer, for Satan has been conquered, for Satan has been defeated. So this is what Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for. Pray in this way. Pray that our sins might not overtake us. Pray that we would be delivered from evil. But just as we are to pray that, we are to realize he also delivers us unto a new life. Not only has Jesus delivered us away from our sin, but in fact, he has delivered us to a new life with him. We are delivered unto new life. When Jesus teaches us to pray, he is teaching us, keep these things in mind. Remind yourself of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Remind yourself of how much he has saved you from, from the lies that Satan has told you about what sin might be, Jesus Christ has rescued you from it. Do you remember the story of the Israelites? They had been taken out of Egypt. They had been rescued from slavery, redeemed. And they had got to the other side of the Red Sea, and they're now walking through the desert. And do you remember what happens? As they're walking through the desert, they immediately start to get hungry and thirsty and tired. And so they start complaining and they start whining and they go to Moses and they say, Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Let's go back to Egypt. It was so much better there. You know, it's amazing. They had just been taken out of slavery and a few days later, they were saying, we should really go back. It was better back there. You see, they had lost sight of the fact that not only has God delivered them out of slavery, but he was delivering them to the promised land. God had a plan for his people. And as much as we might laugh at the Israelites, how could you lose sight of that in just a few days? You had just seen the miracles of God. 
how often do we do the exact same thing? That when we come before Jesus Christ and we ask for forgiveness, how quickly we can end up back in those same patterns. Sometimes it's hours later. We're falling into those same patterns of sin. Those very things we had just come to realize were poison and were killing us. Somehow we're back there. How is it that we forget so quickly? But more importantly, how do we avoid that? How do we set ourselves in such a way that we are no longer pursuing after sin, but following after God? Well, in fact, that's exactly what Paul brings us to in Romans chapter 8, verse 12. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. See, Paul calls to the church in Rome and he says, I want you to remember, brothers and sisters, remember that your sin no longer has any dominion over you. Your sin no longer holds anything over you. You are not debtors to your sinful nature. Rather, you are debtors unto Christ. You see, the problem is sin always kind of comes back and it whispers in our ear, are you sure you want to stop? Are you sure that you can really go the rest of your life? Never once again are you going to go back. Never another drink. Never another look. Are you sure? Paul says, kill that sin. Kill that sin. And we are not to do this by ourselves. It's not in our own power that we put these things to death. Rather, we put them to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus is teaching us to pray this way. Lord, deliver us. We need your help. We need your assistance in order to do this. We cannot do it by ourselves, but with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can learn to put to death what we were doing before, the sins, remind us that the bait comes with a hook. And we learn slowly, day by day, to starve out our sins. To starve them out so that even though they may never leave us entirely, even though we might struggle with certain sins our entire lives, they lose their power. Their strength wanes and grows weak. And so the way that we fight, the way that we kill sin in our lives is not only to remind ourselves about the damage, the effects of sin, but it's also by instilling a new and greater desire. It's by giving us a greater desire. Paul, just a few verses later in Romans 8, he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, for Paul, it was not merely about killing sin and then just stopping it entirely. No, in fact, for Paul, he had replaced it with an even greater desire. His desire was to know Jesus Christ more and more, and that as he pursued this, as he pursued putting his sins to death, he was being captivated by a greater glory. 
He was looking forward to what we have in Jesus Christ and saying, that is worth more than all that sin can even offer me. Sin no longer has any sway. Why? Because Paul is looking for something far greater than all of that. He is looking to come to know Jesus Christ, to live with him eternally. And as we start measuring against what sin has offered us in its tiny tiny pleasures and what we have awaiting for us in glory with God eternally. We realize that sin is offering us peanuts while the banquet is set before us. Sin promises us a place of belonging. Do this and you'll be accepted. What it doesn't say is that in Jesus Christ we are brought into the family of God. While sin promises us pleasure, in Christ we have eternal joy. While sin promises us fulfillment, it leads us away from finding our true fulfillment in God. Until we realize that the greatest joy only comes from following after God, we will struggle with our sins. And so to fight against sin means we remind ourselves day after day of what Jesus has done for us. That in Jesus Christ is joy everlasting. He brings a hope that does not end where there is no stain of sin any longer. So let us fight for this day after day, reminding ourselves of the promises of God, reminding us of what we have in Jesus Christ. And I mean this literally. Remind yourself, write notes, put it on your wall so that the first thing that you do when you wake up is to see the promises of God. Write out a verse, stick it on your bathroom mirror so as you're getting ready, you are reminded of who you are in Jesus Christ. As you drive in the car, listen to sermons, listen to the word of God, remind yourself, place day by day reminders of what God is doing. Pick up your Bible and read. As we come to September, we're at a new start. Make a commitment that each and every day you're going to read your Bible so that you are going to know the Word of God, so that you'll know the promises and the joy that is in Jesus Christ. Set aside time for prayer. Pray as Jesus has taught us to pray. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Set aside time so that that might become part of our regular prayer life and remind ourselves again and again so that we do not lose sight of where we are going. We don't lose sight of the goal of the treasure that we have in Jesus Christ. That we might replace the longing for sin with a far greater joy that is coming. That's why God promises to give us a new heart and a new spirit, one that actually longs after Jesus Christ, one that longs to see his glory go forward. So that the more that we starve our sin, the more that we feed our affection for Jesus Christ, the greater our longing for him becomes. So that we can pray with the Apostle Paul, all of this world is nothing in comparison with the glory of knowing Jesus Christ. Remind ourselves, lean on the Lord God to give us this new heart. But we are called not only to remind ourselves, but to remind each other as well. 
See, in the book of Hebrews, uh, the writer reminds us to exhort one another as long as it is called today so that we might not be taken in by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, God has designed the church in such a way that we might actually remind one another of the grace and of the goodness of God in Christ Jesus. That we would exhort one another to strive for this holiness. In fact, as we've been studying the Lord's Prayer, we've seen this is not an individual prayer, is it? Our Father, deliver us from evil. It is a corporate prayer. We are meant to pray it together. And one of the means by which God has allowed, God has ordained that we would be reminded of his grace is the church. So be practical. Come to church. Come to church and remind yourself week in and week out about what Jesus Christ has done. That's why we do what we do, why we worship together, so that we might praise God and remind ourselves of His goodness and His glory. That's why we preach from the Word of God, so that we might hear the good news of Jesus again. And as we speak to one another, as we fellowship together, let us rehearse the grace of God in our lives. Tell one another about what Jesus Christ has been doing, about how he has delivered us from our sin, how he has forgiven us of our debts. That's what we are called to do as the church of Jesus Christ. Trust in God that he will change our hearts, remind ourselves of what he has done, and remind one another. Rehearse it. Rehearse his glorious gospel. Deliver us from evil. And deliver us to new life in Christ. As I'm, clo- as I'm going to close, I'm just going to invite the band to come forward. And I'll invite the prayer team as well to come to the sides of the room. And as we close, I just want to remind us of what Christ has been doing. We've been studying the Lord's Prayer for the number of weeks now. And we've been taking it line by line. And what can so often happen when we do that is we lose the big picture of what God is doing. We lose the big picture of what Jesus Christ is calling us to pray for. And so I want to remind us, what does it mean to pray this prayer as a Christian? To pray this prayer to our Father because we have been adopted as children of God. We praise His name as hallowed, as holy, because in Christ Jesus we have been given perfect righteousness. We pray that his kingdom would come because in Christ we are united to the high king of heaven who reigns eternal. We pray for his will to be done because we want to see his glory made known because of what he has done for us. We pray for our daily bread because Christ is our heavenly bread. We pray for forgiveness because in Jesus Christ it is made possible. We pray to forgive others because we have come to know what it means to be forgiven. We pray to be led away from temptation because in Christ we have been delivered out of bondage to sin. We pray to be delivered from evil because Christ has overcome the world. You see, this is the prayer of a Christian. This is a prayer that is rooted and grounded in the work of Jesus Christ. 
And so as we go forward, let us pray this confidently, knowing Christ has accomplished all this. Brothers and sisters, would you pray then with me? Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and it is a privilege to call you our Father, to rejoice knowing that you have redeemed us and that you have brought us out of sin and into eternal life. Father, you have done all these things for us. And Lord, I pray, would you remind us of them day by day. Let us not forget the, great, the greatness and the goodness of your grace. Let us not be uh, bought into the lies of sin, nor the lies of Satan that tell us we cannot be forgiven. Lord, forgiveness is open to all who would come. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you have done. Would you get all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. We pray these things in your name. Amen.